Welcome to Voices of Experience, the official podcast of the National Speakers Association. I'm your host, technology strategist and futurist, Crystal Washington. In today's episode, How to Shift an Event to Virtual, we're going to look at what it takes to shift an in-person event to an online virtual experience. Our guest today, along with her amazing team, did just that before there was a blueprint in place. Whether you put on your own events or not, you'll discover valuable nuggets for crafting a true virtual experience. Let's go. Today on Voices of Experience, we are extremely honored to have Anna Liotta, CSP, who just happens to be our immediate past president. And technically, she's the last president we will ever have with the National Speakers Association. Now, a little bit about Anna and how this plugs into our topic today on how she converted in-person influence to our first virtual influence. A little birdie told me that she has a master's in communication, but she was such an avid college student that loved courses that she also just happens to have minors in things like TV production, theater, and marketing. Welcome to Voice of Experience, Anna. Thank you, Crystal. It's great to be with you. Did you sleep in college? How are you taking all of this? <laughs> what was that about? I didn't sleep in college. I'm at some point I'm hoping to catch up on it. And, and, you know, with all those degrees, I also worked to pay my way through college. And one of the things that I worked in was helping the university do their major entertainment planning. So along with all of that, I ran major entertainment for the University of Portland, my undergrad, Mm -hmm. and I found talent like Jay Leno when he was just the Doritos commercial guy and brought him out. Jerry Seinfeld before the show started when it was just going to be a pilot about nothing and nobody knew, you know, who he was. And um, Maya Angelou, when she had never spoken to more than a thousand people, I found her. She only had the one book at the time and I would put on and promote their event and sell them out to a 5,000 seat geodesic dome. So what I'm learning is your college experience truly prepared you for everything you would be doing with NSA in 2020, from the lack of sleep to all the different disciplines that you learned. (laughs) That's right. right. Yes. Over the course of my career, I've probably planned and managed between charity events and other events over 300 to 500 events. And that's not what I do full time. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, well, let's dig into influence because this is why we're here today, because in many ways, you and the National Speakers Association created a blueprint for converting a live, large conference to an online platform. And you did it at a time in June before many organizations had done it. So you you really didn't have a lot to draw from. First question, when you realized that in-person influence was not going to happen, what was the conversation at NSA about potentially going to virtual? Like how, how was this viewed when you first realized we were not meeting in person? So when we thought about it, we thought about how do we start to deliver value right now? At at the very beginning of my presidency and my opening um, induction speech, I talked about every one of us as speakers has to think about our BDA factor. How do we deliver value before we ever get there, during what used to be the event, Mm -hmm. and then long after we left the stage? And so the first thing I immediately started thinking about is that we were going to need to supersize that. Mm -hmm. And we were going to start to need to deliver the value right now of the promise of our seminal event called Influence. Mm -hmm. And so 
I immediately saw the blueprint that was possible of pulling forward the breakouts that would have been a large footprint of time and space on a physical and delivering them starting in May, even though our event wasn't until September. So that was the first thing is, okay, how do we take the assets that we already have, these extraordinary talented people that have said, I'll do a breakout mm -hmm. and begin to deliver it now so that people were getting that before factor? And that was phenomenal because, again, like you said, this started in May. Our event was in June. And so actually the influence was in September. I'm sorry. It was yes, September. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you started this way ahead of time in terms of the converting the breakouts themselves. Let's just start with that. Okay. Because at this time, a lot of speakers didn't have as much practice with virtual. So were there safeguards you put in place to ensure the integrity of the event? There absolutely were. One of the things that we said from the beginning is that we will be transparent. We will be transparent. And, and we invited everyone and said, listen, if you don't have content that works for right now, we thank you for having been willing to serve, but you are not still obligated. I think that's really important to everybody to understand, like you got to give people an out if you're asking them to do something other than what they agreed to. Okay. Almost every single person said yes, which was a wonderful delight and surprise to us. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we did is we said, we want you to share starting in May with the best that you've got and understanding how to do what was needed right now mm -hmm. and, and share the failures you've had, share the successes you've had. And that authenticity was a really key part mm -hmm. to the success of it because people were being ridiculously generous. As I call it, we wanted to deliver ridiculous value. The other thing that we did that was super successful is we had a consistency in the people interviewing across all of the different episodes. So we had two volunteers, Liz Green and Tom Singer, who were our interviewers of the of the folks. And we had tech check practices before we ever got to the actual live production of 60 Minutes. Mm -hmm. And that was really, really critical, that consistency, the professionalism of both of our um, moderators, interviewers, and then that we were doing this um, with you know, we on the platform of Zoom so that we could get in, we could practice it, and then we could produce it. You know, what I loved about you having Tom and Eliz there is the fact that they already had that type of experience. And yes. so they really did tie everything together, but it also guaranteed a certain level of polish as well, because it was like you had these people in these helpful positions doing this. And so, you know, you mentioned the fact that you were pulling some of the value forward for that before. And it seemed like it served as a way to cut down the length of the main event, right? So that you, they weren't sitting in their chairs so long, but it, did it also help with marketing the event? The fact that you could buy in now early and, and people could start participating and watching, did that help any with the registrations? Absolutely, because people need to know it, it, the, the idea that the proximity event is the value is something that I would say is a BC, a before COVID, right? That people right now, when they're going to spend money, the moment they register, they want to start getting value. And that's what we started delivering is, you know, many people were already registered for the on-site event mm -hmm. and we needed to deliver to them value right now because that's what they needed. Mm. So when it came time to make that shift, you had already had people who paid for the live in-person influence. So for anyone that's listening in similar situations, how do you manage the conversion where people have already bought into one type of event? 
You know, we gave them a lot of options. Okay. We gave them a lot of options about how they wanted to use their investment. But what we made sure is that we gave them options that were worth the value of their investment, mm-hmm. no matter what choice that they made. So we were, again, back to that transparency, we were super transparent with people. We gave them a long run time to even make the decision mm-hmm. of how they wanted to use it. And because initially we didn't know if we were still going to have an opportunity of being live or if it was going to be all virtual. So what we did is we were incredibly fair all the way along. Okay. Okay. And then I know that I know personally people who paid in early attended the virtual and really felt that it was worth their time. And you know what? There's actually one other thing there, Crystal. Yes. We were committed that every single segment people would say that was worth the price of my, so every single segment was worth the whole price. So it sounds like a over delivering at this point. You, you we over delivered. <laughs> I would have to agree with that. So let's get to the main event itself. Okay. Now, this is something where normally people are at an event, they want to hug each other. Speakers are extremely social, they're in and out of rooms. When it came to planning, how did you all look at converting this in person experience to virtual to still? deliver the things that people needed socially as well as intellectually? Such a great question. I think this is where a lot of people can miss the opportunity to Mm -hmm. think of what is the texture of what people are going to be feeling? How do we move the emotion through the arc of the three days? So one thing we chose is that we still had three days, not four as we had had traditionally in the past, but we condensed it to three days Mm -hmm. and that we still chose not to run it all day, but rather in 90 minute segments, because when people are watching, they're going to get fatigued and now even more so than, you know, back in September, but they're going to get fatigued by just sitting and watching no matter how great the content is. And we had great content. Like that's the, the, the jewel of our association as we've got so much extraordinary talent, but we really thought about when do you move to interaction? When do you move to crowdsourcing? content. So opening with a bang with Michelle Poehler, high energy. She had us dancing. There was a a high energy to that segment. And then having our master of influence, Bertice Berry being honored, we took it to a heart moment. So in our very opening, we went from high and fun to that heart moment when we could all celebrate the work of an extraordinary talent like Bertice, Dr. Bertice Berry. Then we went to the evening of having something fun where everybody could be on stage if they'd wanted to. And that was the talent, no talent show. So even in that opening arc, we thought about what are the spaces that we're going to want to take people through and where do we want to end that evening with fun and hilarity. People could send in 60 second uh, talent or no talent, and we were watching them together. So there was that kind of sense of fun and celebration in that opening. Then on going into day two, we were looking at where will people now be? So this is when we were going to take them deeper into content. And we put a thematic sense to what we were doing, but we also created what we called the digital dine rounds, where we had luminaries from the community that were hosting a table, just like you could walk from table to table if you were at the lunch. This was something where we put up the Zoom rooms. You could, we had the list of everybody and you could pop into it. And this became an incredibly rich opportunity for that connection moment. So it can't all be structured and it can't all be unstructured. You 
needed that opportunity to have that connection and be able to sit next to somebody that you wouldn't have had access to at any other time. We also put in the piece of having the meet the pros. And this was to give rapid content and a lot of people access to both being on the stage as well as to getting the content that they needed. So that choice of being able to say, this is the pro that I need to listen to, or this is the content that I need to have access to right now, but having it be short, they were only 20 minute segments. Then there was 10 minutes to transition and then a 20 minute segment, 10 minutes to transition. So thinking online about the cadence is really important for people, as well as the ability to have something where you're learning and somebody else is downloading to you to where you're being interactive and you're part of it as well. I think what's powerful about when you all did that is I hadn't seen very many organizations give up control over controlling their attendees every single movement. And so you did allow for spaces for people to move around and, you know, at their pace and, and go where they wanted to go. And so it gave it a level of authenticity that I hadn't seen before influence. I'll share one other thing I thought was interesting. I think when you talk about setting the tone, as you all did on, on day one, I think chat reflected that because our chat box looked like if you were at a normal conference, people are making funny comments on the side, they're encouraging, they're clapping. And so you set this tone. Was that intentional? Did you all did you all foresee that happening in chat, even the fact that that continuous conversation would go on? Or was that a fluke? No, we expected that. And it was as rich as we expected and more. But here's the thing I would tell people that are thinking about planning a conference, or if you are in a conference, um, one thing is we already had a community. And when there is an existing community, like an association, the chat can go boom, 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 back and forth because people are almost competing with each other, frankly, to <laughs> say the funniest thing or have the, the comment uh, that is, you know, gets a trend going off of it. But when you are in an event where people don't know each other as well, this is where you need to prompt the chat more. And this is something that I'm doing in my own speaking is when I collaborate and partner with the organization, I'm helping them think about what they should be doing to stimulate the chat. So we had thought a couple of things, but we also had all of our speakers in there. We had our two amazing conference chairs, Sylvie DeGiusto and Bill Staten were in there and we were seeding the chat. And that was really important too. One of the things that we also did is Sylvie and Bill masterfully thought about how they would emcee the event virtually mm -hmm. to the texture of each moment. So they opened up together where they did some magical editing so that it looked like they were side by side, even though they weren't. And they really spent the time on their scripting mm -hmm. beforehand to think what will have happened and where will people be at this moment? And what do we as the MCs who have pre-recorded mm -hmm. need to be thinking about? And that's really important to, for people to understand if you're going to do a pre-recorded thing of that nature. It's, it's really important that you don't step on what just happened in the room. Okay. Okay. So you kind of have to anticipate what, what will likely happen in that space. That's right. You really have got to put yourself in the chair of the people and make sure that if there was a super touching, emotional, heart-centric thing that you don't come back in the next moment and be like, so, la, 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 and you're like over the top and, and people are like, did you, were you not there? Because now all of a sudden there's an inauthenticity mm -hmm. in the room. Like you didn't 
actually know what just happened, how rich that was. So being able to feel and think through the arc of what you're doing is really important. So speaking of thinking through the arc, and again, I, I, I keep saying that you all in many ways kind of created a blueprint, live or pre-recorded. <laughs> and you all chose pre-recorded, right? For the most part, in a time when most people were still kind of, why was that choice made? Just kind of walk me through the, the thought process here. So that is critically important because as much as we would love to do everything live at that point, and even now, not everybody had stable internet connections and, and reliability of it's all working at the moment that we need to work at. So we did most things pre-recorded mm -hmm. with a couple of things that were planned to be live and then had to make some adjustments. Mm -hmm. So the reason that we did most things pre-recorded is one, for the production team, it's wonderful to be able to set it up, queue it up, and we also have the talent to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and right now, most of our clients are having to make that decision as well. Mm -hmm. And it becomes incredibly important to us if we are pre-recording that we think about what's happening before, what is the texture, what is the tone, where am I sl sliding into this? I just did an event yesterday that had an extraordinary panel of women from all different backgrounds, diverse women, a young woman who is a Native American runner, a woman who is a, on the sports team out here. She's the hockey scout for the new sports team in Seattle, the Kraken, and she had a diverse background. It was just this amazing group of people. And my piece was pre-recorded to come in right after they'd all shared about how they found and lifted their voice. Mm -hmm. And for me to have come in at that moment and had opening energy, like, hey, everybody, would have been a disruption to the richness of what they just shared. So I had to feel into what are they going to have done and where is my piece going to come in and match it, even though it's pre-recorded, so that there's still that authenticity. So we had our MCs for the Talent No Talent show be live to the pre-recorded doing the banter and doing the interaction and that kind of thing. And even that moment we had the pre-recorded to be set, but it was hard to have those live banter back and forth and they did a masterful job in balancing it. But then we had a pre-recorded or a live program that was going to be interactive. And there was a technical difficulty in getting that person's um, audio working. Mm. We had a backup of a recorded session ready to go. And I think that's the thing that everybody has to think about is even if your client is saying, yes, we want to go live with you, do you have a backup that they have access to of a recording that they could play live if it had to go to that? Because it's the worst thing that we could do is have our client to a you know multi-thousand or hundreds of people event have nothing to go with. That's powerful. And I think that's something that maybe not all of us have considered before uh, having that backup. So in closing, you've given us so many wonderful tips. When NSA did this event, you were working with many different types of speakers uh, with different experience levels, different technology knowledge levels. Is there any advice that you would give this, all the speakers that are listening right now in terms of working with organizations on their different events right now virtually? Because they, they are all doing things differently. So is there something that you're seeing that we need to do differently to add more value in the process? 
Uh, yes. So the NSA staff did an amazing job of learning new things on the fly and, you know, figuring out how to solve problems that we'd never solved before. As are each one of our clients, you are a partner to the staff and to the organization, and they, for by and large, have not done this before. So you have to think about every time you delay getting them anything, you're causing massive stress on their part, whether it's your bio or your video or anything like that. And you got to be flexible. You got to be willing to flow with where they are, because this is not easier to do things virtually, as we have all come to discover. It's not easier on their side, and it's not easier because they are burning calories at a rate that they have not burned calories to do events when there was this muscle memory in place on how to do the physical on-site. Mm -hmm. So asking a lot more questions up front about how you can partner with them. Now, if you're just delivering your video to them, mm -hmm. that's a whole different thing. What came before, what's coming after, how do you, you know, where are you going to fit in, mm -hmm. but get your video to them as early as possible. So they've got time to review it. Know that they might ask for some edits to your video when you're like, that is my video. My video is my video. They might ask for some edits so that it fits into what they're designing. Cause they're in the midst right now of trying to figure out that whole arc design. And so more questions in the beginning about where you're going to fit, what they're going to do, what the outcome of the event that they're working towards is, and how your work is going to match their need. Thank you for tuning in to Voices of Experience, the podcast of the National Speakers Association. Catch us on your favorite podcast app, YouTube, and NSA's social media profiles. I'll see you next week when we'll discuss what you need to know to work with a virtual assistant. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.